Also, you don't know this about Jeff, but the night before he graduated from Liberty, some of you might know this. I mean, he's an RD, he's in seminary, he has a tie, he looks all cool and all that stuff. But the night before he graduated from Liberty, Liberty, they have a dome over the, um, the gym. And uh, one of his buddies scaled it, put up ropes, and uh, they all dressed in black and incognito and all that, and they climbed the side of the gym, and they put up this big sign that says, done that? Been there, done that. Class of 94 for the graduation the next day. And the security could not climb up there later on to pull it down before all the parents and everything came in. So lo and behold, for graduation, they had a sign. But that's your RD here. So if you ever kind of, if you're fooling around or anything and he wants to get in your kitchen, just let him know about graduation night or before that. Anyway, I was, um, when I asked, was asked to speak, I was given a, a letter that said, this is not church. And uh, so I went into my files and thought, maybe I'd pull out this, this funny story that I came across. And uh, my wife asked me after I told her, told it to her, she says, well, how does that relate to your um, the sermon today? And I said, well, it, it does, just communication and, and, and listen in a lot of ways. There's a lady, Mrs. Clifton Hurd of Parity, Texas, who tells the following true story of a possible difficult situation of life. Listen as I read her story. My friend is a rather old-fashioned lady, always quite delicate and elegant. She and her husband were planning a week's vacation in Florida, so she rode to a particular campground and asked for a reservation. She wanted to make sure that the campground was fully equipped, but didn't know how to ask about the toilet facilities. And we can talk about that in here, because this is not church, this is chapel. That's what I was told. She just couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter. After much deliberation, she finally came up with the old-fashioned term, bathroom commode. But once she wrote that down, she still thought it was being too forward. So she started all over again and rewrote the entire letter and referred to the bathroom commode merely as the B.C. Does the campground have its own B.C.? is actually what she wrote. Well, the campground owner wasn't actually old-fashioned at all. And when he got the letter, he just couldn't figure out what the woman was talking about. That B.C. business really stumped him. After wondering about it for a while, he showed the letter to several campers, but they couldn't figure out what the lady meant either. So the campground owner finally came to the conclusion that the lady must be asking about the local or the location of the local Baptist church, and he sat down and wrote the following reply to her. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take the pleasure of informing you that a BC is located nine miles north of the campground and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it is quite a distance away if you are in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you will be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches and make a day of it. They usually arrive early and stay late. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago, and it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time when we were there. It may interest you to know that right now there's a, there's a separate plan to raise money to put in more seats. They're going to hold it in the basement of the B.C. I would like to say that it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but it's surely no lack of desire on my part. 
As we grow older, it seems to be more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. <laughs> if you do decide to come down to our campground, perhaps I can go with you the first time, <laughs> sit with you, and introduce you to all the other folks. Remember, this is a friendly community. What in the world does that have to do with our message this morning? My wife was asking me. Well, I just told her, communication, you know, you got to communicate effectively to get across what you're trying to understand. But in a serious note, as we do come to God's Word, you know, we hear a lot about the Christian life. I mean, we hear so many different sermons about five things to do here and ten things to do here in your Christian walk and what we need to be doing as Christians Rarely do we ever hear a message on why. And it's not wrong to hear messages like that at all. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's the Word of God. It's really what God has given us to, to really understand and know life and what we are to be doing as Christians. But rarely do we hear messages on why we are to do what we are to do and what the Bible requires of us. In other words, what is our motivation in the Christian life? What do I mean by this? Well, most Christians see Christianity as a bunch of rules that need to be obeyed in order to keep a right standing with God. They live out of fear. Some think trials come because they sin. Did you ever thought, think of that before? Man, I must be sinning in my life. Why are these trials? God's punishing me. I know I used to think like that. Others feel that if they sin, they will lose their salvation, so they accept Christ over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times I did that. As a, as a teenager. Every time I'd sin, I'd, I'd, I'd fall on my knees once again and accept Christ once again. And I'm sure it's been the same story with many of you. Others are motivated by an external system of righteousness we call legalism. And when I did that, I went from one emphasis of just kind of just living footloose and fancy free in my Christian life when I, I don't even think I was saved, all the way to the other side and being very narrow-minded in what I can do and what I can't do and all these different things. And everything in my life was focused on an external code of of legalism. In other words, people think they're pleasing God by works of the law. Still others carrying around these huge burdens of sin and guilt, spending countless hours confessing sin, asking for forgiveness, and trying to be broken as if these acts pacify God. Six years ago, that's the way I lived out my life. I mean, I would spend countless hours of trying to confess my sin and trying to be broken before God, thinking if I confessed every single sin in my life and, and, and began to repent of, all, of them all, and even trying to be broken and, and, and have that attitude of brokenness before God, that that would pacify God and God would be pleased with my life. I'm not saying that we're not to confess sin and we're not to repent of sin and we're not to be broken over our sinfulness because we are. Because it's an offense to God. But what's the motive behind what you do in your Christian walk? Do you do what you do in order to earn favor with God? Do you do what you do in order to maintain a right standing with God? In other words, if I do these things, then God will be pleased with my life and I can move on and God will be happy and I'll be happy. Or do you do what you do out of love for God because of His love for you? Is that your chief motivation in the Christian life? You see, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, or constrains us, controls us. Having concluded this, that once died for all, therefore all died. And He died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. 
You see, when we understand God's love for us in the death of Jesus Christ, it ought to control and constrain us to give that love back to God. And what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 14 and 15? It says that they should no longer live for themselves, but that they would live for Him who died for them. You see, that's the whole purpose of salvation is that we would live for God. That He would take a people for His own possession, separate us and pull us out of the world. That we would live for Him and not for ourselves. But so often we do live for ourselves. You see, it's your motive in the Christian life that makes a difference. I do what I do because of my love for God and my gratitude for what He has done through Christ. And that love controls me. It constrains me. It motivates me. It keeps me going when I'm down. When I'm depressed. When I'm not feeling good. When I just don't feel like living the Christian life. I can understand that one died for me. You know, on the other hand, what about the person who has no motivation for the Christian life? What about the person who sees no great problems with sin? I mean, my life's not that bad. I mean, I'm comfortable, I'm complacent, kind of, you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just existing in the Christian life. What about that person? The same is true for them. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. It constrains us. We love Him because He first loved us. Now, how can we understand that love that God has for us? Turn with your, in your Bibles with me to Romans 5. And that's the passage that we will be speaking on this morning. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. One of my favorite passages of all the Bible. I mean, just to, what I want to do this morning is just let's step back. Let's not talk about what we need to do. Let's not talk about what we need to be, although we need to do that. Don't get me wrong. Let's just look at our salvation this morning. Let's just look what God has done to the person of Jesus Christ. And kind of just meditate upon that and just take that in as being the real motivation for our Christian walk. Romans 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for Christ. Most of all, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we all don't always have the love that we ought to have for You. And Lord, sometimes we are motivated by fear. And Lord, in, in a healthy sense, that could be good because First Peter 1 talks about living in fear if we call You Father. But Lord, help us to know that You love us and that You died and that none of us deserve that. So Father, as we look into this passage, I pray that it would be refreshing for us this morning. Lord, that we would understand our true salvation. All done through the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, in verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul defines three consequences of our salvation. Of our being justified by faith. Three things applied to our life at salvation. And to the degree that you understand the significance of these three consequences, is the degree that you will begin to lay a foundation for a proper view of loving God. Let me say that again. Three things apply to your life at salvation and to, do, and to the degree that you understand the significance of these three consequences is the degree that you will begin to lay a proper foundation in loving God. In other words, developing a right 
motivation for loving God. The first consequence is past peace with God. The second is present standing in grace. And the third is future hope of the glory of God. Well, let's begin at looking at the first consequence of our salvation, peace with God. Paul starts off, therefore. And what Paul's doing, he's laying a foundation for really what he's getting into in, verse, in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And he starts off in chapter 1 of Romans, in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed upon the unrighteousness and the wickedness of men. What men? Well, those men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Those men who stiff-armed God and said, God, we won't believe in You. We will live our own life, go our own route, and do what we want to do. Men who suppress the truth. In chapter 2, it's the self-righteous Jew. The one who grew up knowing about God and His law. The one who grew up as a Jew. The one who grew up as a religious person. The one who even went to the temple and sacrificed. Got involved in the religious activity of Jerusalem. And God said, even that self-righteous Jew is under condemnation in my wrath. Chapter 3, Paul includes all men. Every single one of us was under wrath. And it didn't matter what kind of person we were. It didn't matter if we were the goody two-shoes growing up in a Christian home. It didn't matter if we sinned a little. It didn't matter. Chapter 3 says that all of us were under the condemnation of God and His wrath. No one, because of his life, family, or law-keeping, was or is excluded from God's wrath. Now this floored the Jews when they thought about this because all their life they believed in the law. All their life they thought they were doing what is right. And Paul writes this and it, it, it hits them across the head and slams them. It's like, man, how could he even say that? I'm a good person. I've kept the law. God is our God. He took us out of the land of Egypt to be our God and for us to be His people. And for you to say that if I keep the law, that I'm under condemnation, what are you talking about, Paul? You see, Paul anticipates a question from the Jew. He says, if I don't seek God by the works of the law, how then can I have peace with God? And that's Paul's discussion in Romans 3.21-4.25. through Paul says people have peace with God because by His grace, He justifies man through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It has nothing to do with your law abiding. And then he comes to chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, what does the term justification mean as we're talking about this? Literally means to be justified, or to be justified literally means to be declared in the right. God declared that we were in the right. The word is a judicial term of court. In other words, a judge's verdict. Justification then is a declaration or pronouncement of our righteous standing before God. God acquitted us and pronounced us us sinners as righteous. Let me illustrate that. Let's say you're driving down Placerita Canyon right down here and you got a ticket. Okay, the cop pulled you over, you got a ticket, and he said, okay, show up in court on this date. And you're standing before the judge and the judge said, okay, Rick, you were speeding, you owe $80. And I'm like, well, judge, I don't have $80. Legally, they could throw you in prison at that time. I don't have $80. And all of a sudden, right up behind me says, hold on, judge, I just came from the cashier. Someone just comes up and says, Okay, judge, I just came from the cashier. I just paid his debt. And the judge slams down his gavel and says, I declare you 
Righteous in a sense. You can go free. You see, that's justification. God declaring us as righteous in Christ. And let me also say, justification is not only a declaration of our righteous standing before God. It is an actual placing of the righteousness of God on our life. It's imputed to us. It's given to us. In other words, we did nothing to attain it. And God looks at us, and when He looks at us, He looks at us as in Christ. He doesn't see Rick on the outside in all his sinfulness. He looks at me as in a sense of being placed in Christ. And when He looks at my life, He sees the righteousness of Christ clothed on me. And He says, you have right standing because I have given you my righteousness. And it's all in Christ. It's nothing we have done. And let me also say, it's not a practical righteousness. I'm not saying that God places a perfection on my life and then I'm sinless for the rest of my life. No, it's how God looks at me. In standing, he sees me as righteous. Look at Second Corinthians five twenty one. And by the way, as you guys are sharing the gospel with people, take them to this verse. I mean, don't let, don't ever let your gospel message ever come to a point where someone has to, in a sense, live an obedient life, or they have to repent. They do have to repent, yes, but a repentance is only the work of justification. But let them know what takes place. Especially in this verse, it says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You know what happened at the cross? Somehow, some way, 2,000 years ago, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, your life was taken back 2,000 years ago, placed on the very cross of Christ. That's what the Bible says. You died in Him. And God said, I give you my righteousness. It's a great transaction. Not only did God take away your sin. See, if He did that, you still would not be able to stand before God. But He also gave you His righteousness. Because God is an infinite holy God, and you know that. He's perfect. And nothing imperfect can stand in His presence. And if He just took away our sin, that wouldn't be enough. Because He had to give us His righteousness. Because His righteousness is the standard for eternal life and to stand before Him. Now, how did this all happen? Back to Romans 5.1. It says through faith. doesn't say through obedience. doesn't say through repentance, although that, again, that will be the work of justification. It says by faith. I know a guy who spoke a message like this one time on justification. Someone came up and said, wait a minute, you can't just tell people all they need to do is easy, you know, uh, just as easy as just believing. You can't tell people that. They need to do something. And the guy says, Do they believe that their sin was placed on the cross? Do they believe that God gave them their righteousness? Yes. That's what salvation is all about. Believing. Obedience and repentance comes after that because it's a work. So Paul says this all takes place by faith. You see, God did not justify you because you obeyed or you grew up in a Christian family or because He liked you. It was purely, completely, solely by God's grace through faith. Let me footnote. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, what that is he talking about? That grace and that faith is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Do you know that you did not even drum up enough faith to believe in God? Neither did I. God gave you not only the grace as a gift, but He gave you the faith to believe in Him because Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and so was I. 
I mean, that's incredible to think. When I look back at my life and when I, throughout my teenage years and in, in, in first few years in college, rebelled against God and lived in absolute decadence and absolute sinfulness, God at that time saved me. That blows me away. And we can't lose sight of that. It's like the guy who comes from the Bronx and forgets where he comes from. He doesn't want anything to do with his old neighbors and his old friends back in the Bronx because he's made it in the world. Can't forget where we came from, folks. Because God saved us from a wretched life. And again, I don't care if you grew up in a Christian family or if you were a goody tissue and you thought you never sinned. It doesn't matter. The Bible says that the wrath of God was on us. It's amazing to think. Now, if that does not stir a motivation for a greater love for God, something's wrong. I mean, if you can't walk out of this room today and say, man, God loves me. No, I might not have been a radical sinner like some other people. But the Bible says, there's, in a sense, with God, perfection is infinite. Holiness is infinite. And if I broke any of the little laws that God required on my life, then that means I broke them all. And I'm just as wicked as the other person in God's eyes. And that ought to stir a great love in our heart. I mean, how encouraging to know that salvation is solely of God and I did nothing to deserve it or earn it. You know what else is encouraging? I can do nothing to lose it. I mean, if God did it, if God saved me, I can do nothing to lose it. And that's Paul's whole emphasis in verses 1 through 11. Eternal security because of our justification by grace as seen in the first consequence that we have peace with God. You know, let me also add that this peace is not a subjective peace. It's not a peace that we come up and walk away with and say, oh, I feel so peaceful with God. God is just so good. No, it's an objective peace. It's an understanding that reconciliation has been made between God and the sinner, whether he feels it or not. It's something we need to believe. Not battle with. Not am I saved or, you know, am I justified? No, we don't battle. The Bible says we are justified and that justification by faith has been produced by God. And not only has it been produced by God, but He even gave us the, the faith to believe in that as a gift from Him. Solely of Him. Why did you need peace? Why did I need peace? I mean, you may say, I was never at war with God. I mean, I grew up in a Christian home and, and I always believed in God. Well, I grew up in a Catholic home and I always believed in God. I could say I was never at war with God. Not at all. But see, the fact is, not that you were at war with God necessarily, because you were, but that God was at war with you. God was at war with me. So you had condemnation. Romans 8, 6 through 8. Listen to what it says. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh could not please God. Before you knew the Lord Jesus Christ, you were in the flesh. And what does it say? It has nothing to do with the, the degree of sinfulness that you were involved in. But it has everything to do, when you didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, it said that you were in the flesh. And it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Not only did you have condemnation, but you were subject to God's wrath. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Condemnation, God's wrath. You and I were alienated from God. Ephesians 2.1 and 2. Say, so then you were dead it doesn't say you were half alive. 
It doesn't say you were becoming alive. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Spiritually dead. Unable to respond to God. It's like going down to the county morgue. Open up one of the drawers. Pull out one of the stiffs in there. Let's say the building was on fire. And you said, get up! Get up! The building's on fire. Your body's going to burn. You think the thing's going to get up? No. You see, spiritually, in a sense, that's the way you, you were. It's like a dead battery. Is a battery always a battery? Yeah, it's always going to be a battery. It's either dead or alive. It's dead. It's not going to work. And that's the same way it was with us spiritually. Separated, alienated from God because we are dead. Absolutely unresponsive to Him. And you had enmity with God. Look at Romans 5.10. It says, For if, while we were enemies. It doesn't say, if we were enemies. We were enemies. The Bible just plainly puts us right where we were at in our standing before we knew Christ. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. See, what an incredible, incredible predicament we were in before we knew God. Condemnation. God's wrath. Alienated. Enmity. And to top it all off, Psalm 7.11 said, God is angry with the wicked every day. You know what that means? That means before you and I knew the Lord Jesus Christ, God was angry with us. And you said, well, I grew up in a Christian home. Wait a minute. I mean, God, how were you angry with me? I wasn't really doing anything wrong. The issue is, it's not what we think, but it was what God thinks and how God declared us before we knew God. Now, at that moment, Christ died for the ungodly, us, bringing us into a relationship of peace with God. When we were separated, when we were alienated, when we were condemned, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, at that time, God died for us. That's incredible to think, folks. Not when we were doing good, not when we were seeking God, not when we were on the road to righteousness, but at the time of our ungodliness, Christ died. I mean, that's incredible to think. And all that should do in our hearts is stir up great love for God and a motivation to walk with Him. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a motivation to give our lives as a surrender and as a sacrifice to God. That's why John in 1 John 3, 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Once enemies, now children. It's amazing to think. You see, once at war with God, as I said before, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home or not. You know, there's a subtle pride with people who do grow up in a Christian home. And it's a pride that's not a, an active pride in a sense. It's not someone who's just haughty and puffed up. But there's a pride that comes with that. And that pride is, is they look at the next person and they see that person who didn't grow up in a Christian home and they see their sinfulness and they see that, how they were caught up in drugs and partying and illicit sex and they look at that person and they say, well, I was never that bad. I never did any of those things. And there's a subtle pride that grows in their heart thinking, well, I'm not that bad. You see, the issue is, it's not that you weren't that bad as that other person. The issue is that your sin never had a, an opportunity to fully manifest itself because you were in a, in a controlled environment with Christian parents. And thank God you were. Because I'd trade that. I hope you would never trade that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. You know what's awesome about that? God still saved me. 
But you see, don't get prideful about your heritage. But understand and know, yeah, you were just as wicked as the other person. But your sin did not have an opportunity to manifest itself like someone else's did. Who maybe didn't have the control of their parents controlling them. Or a Christian school. And that only gives us even a greater love for others. You know, I don't battle with people that, that are involved in sin. and, and, and um, I don't get mad at that. You know, sometimes we can be real prideful with people who are just caught up in sin. Man, my heart breaks for them. Because the Bible says they're enslaved to sin. I mean, we can't look at the world and say, oh, how the world, oh, how all those people are just wicked. And, oh, uh, they deserve to go to hell or any of that stuff. They deserve to be condemned by God. No. That's not our attitude. Because apart from the grace of God, we would be there also. And that just floors me. When I see even a Christian falling in sin, I say, but by the grace of God, I could be there as well because God's grace holds us. So Christians, the Christian's motivation to love God comes from the fact that God has made peace with me. The war is over. And the more I understand this truth, the greater love for God is developed in my heart. You see, when I was a legalist person, I didn't love God. All I wanted to do is please God by my external code of conduct. But see, as I began to start setting some of these things, it just floored me one day when I came across this. I'm like, man, at the time of my wickedness, God died for me. I was kicking and screaming. I didn't want peace with God. I was kicking and screaming. That's how ugly the heart is. I mean, here God is, is offering His peace with us. And we're like, No. Unless God placed that faith within our heart and turned our heart, we would still be at war with Him and liking it. This also means that God is perfectly satisfied with our lives in Christ. Nothing will change our standing with Him. Nothing will ever change our standing with Him. You know, God looks at your life today and He's perfectly satisfied. He is perfectly satisfied with your life in Christ. Why do we all get always get so bummed out and, oh my goodness, I should be so much further than I am. Yeah, you know, you should be. All of us should be. But God is perfectly satisfied with our life where we are today because the Scripture says that we are in Christ and when He looks at us, He looks at us as being in Christ. And that doesn't motivate us to go out and sin and that doesn't motivate us to not work hard and to work out our salvation and for a life of obedience. But it gives us a security and it gives us a hope and it gives us a comfort. Man, God, I, there's nothing I have to do to please you anymore. There's nothing I have to do to change my standing. There's nothing I have to do to try to pacify you. It's, it's taken care of and that's all taken care of in Christ. Now I live my life in the motivation to love you and to please you because of what you've done for me. One writer said this, When a Christian is convinced he's eternally secure in Christ, he is freed from focusing on his his own goodness and merit and is able to serve the Lord with the unqualified confidence that nothing can separate him from his heavenly Father. He can say with Paul, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that incredible that nothing will ever change our standing before God, even our own sinfulness? Blows me away when I think about that. But not only do we, do believers have peace with God set in the past, but this peace is continually secure with the second consequence of our salvation, and that is our present standing in grace. Look at Romans 5.2. 
He says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Stop there. The second consequence of salvation is our present standing with grace. Past peace with God that continues in the future and present standing in grace. Christ not only mediates peace, but he mediated and continues to mediate our introduction and access to God. Paul says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction. The key to this word introduction is both the initial introduction and the continual result of access to God. Let me illustrate this. In ancient times, when a person wanted to go in before a king, and he wanted to talk to the king, he had to talk to the king's servant and ask the king's servant to go into the king and ask if he can be brought into the king's presence. And if the king didn't want him, he said, no, I don't want to see anybody right now. I don't want him to come in. And if that person rushed past that servant and rushed into the presence of the king, immediately they'd be snuffed out. Because you don't go into the presence of the king without his permission. But you see, Christ brings us into the very essence, into the very presence of God as our mediator. How does he do that? Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me read that again. Dwell on this. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ right now is interceding on our behalf. Christ right now is mediating our access into God. And at any moment, at any time of the day, We can go to God in prayer and draw near to Him knowing that Christ is mediating that access to God. And Paul adds in Romans 5 too, he says, by faith. Again, we must believe it. I mean, there's times in my own life when when, when I'm sinning and I start thinking incorrectly. I'm like, how can I go to God? How can I pray? How can I confess sin? Oh, I did this over again. Oh, I'm thinking this, this wrong thing. Oh, I'm being haughty or proud again, once again. How can I go to God in prayer? See, that's a wrong thought because Romans says through the Apostle Paul that I can go to God at any time and I am to go to God at any time confessing my sin and knowing that Christ mediates that access into God. So we start by faith and we continue our lives in faith. And further still, the possession of this grace is permanent. Paul says, this grace in which we stand, it's firm. We don't fall. We're not falling before God. We're not falling out of grace. We stand in it. So justification leading to peace, leading to access, is continually being mediated by Christ. We remain in it, abide in it, stand in it presently. And let me just say it again. It doesn't matter what goes on in our life. Now, if we're living a sinful life and practicing sin, 1 John deals with that. Romans 6 deals with that. Maybe we aren't truly saved. But the fact of the matter is, if we have been justified by faith and we are living for God and we sin, that's not going to change our standing with God and not even our own grace and the access into the throne of God. It is the immovable status of our Christian life. Now, that should bring us great comfort. That should bring us great comfort that I can go to God at any time of the day knowing that Christ is mediating that access into His throne. For grace will never leave me because Christ's work is absolutely sufficient. You know what that tells me? That tells me, first of all, I can be confident in my sinning. I can be confident in my sinning. No, 
Not to just go out and sin and do whatever I want to do. But I can be confident that when I do sin, I still have that access and I still have that peace with God. You see, sometimes when we sin, we feel like we've got to do something. Oh, I better go out and have a quiet time every day this week. In a sense, as if we're pacifying God. Oh, I better get involved in ministry. I better do something to please God because He's not happy with me. And, and in a sense, no, He's not. He's not happy with your sin. But I can be confident that my peace with God is, will never be changed. I'll never be at war with God again. I'll never have enmity with God again. Because that relationship of friendship has been developed. It also tells me that I can have confidence in God's forgiveness. That when I go to God, He will forgive me. And that my sin has been placed on the cross of Christ. Past, present, and future. And it also tells me that I have a deep dependence on Christ as my mediator for present living. In other words, I don't just come to Christ and say, okay, forget it, I'm walking, I'm doing my own life now. But no, every single day of my life I depend upon God for present Christian living. So what causes us to have a greater love for God? Past peace with God? Present standing in grace? There's one more consequence of our salvation. Look at verse 2b. He says, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Point three is our future hope of the glory of God. Our future hope of the glory of God. You see, since every aspect of salvation is a work of God, the end result is the ultimate glorification of the believer. Look at Romans 8.30. First is you're familiar, but it's good to constantly go back and remind ourselves of these. The ultimate glorification of the believer. Romans 8.30. It says, And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul says the believer exalts or boasts in this work of God. It's not of me. It's not a drumming up some boasting or some exalting that I've done anything to deserve God's grace upon my life. But it's a, it's a boasting in God. It's an exaltation in God. It's saying, no, I'm not going to the place of wickedness. No, I don't have God's wrath upon my life. Man, I'm going to be a child of God in the sense that I'm going to be just like Jesus Christ. I won't sin anymore. That floors me. That gets me so excited that one day I'm not going to have to worry about sin. One day I'm going to be just like Jesus Christ. One day I'm going to be perfect. And that's the thing that I boast in. Not because of what I have done. And when the distresses of life and the trials of life and the trials of sin... And the discomforts of life come across. I could just think, you know what, this is all passing away. One day I'm going to be like Christ. And that brings me great joy. It's a confident rejoicing and anticipation of that which we do not yet see. And that's why he says hope. We don't see it yet. Because we're still battling with our sinfulness. We're still battling in this life. But you know, one day we'll have it. The very future reality that I will one day be like Christ. No more sin. Listen to what John Murray, one commentator, wrote about this. He said, when we ask how the goal of the believer's hope can be called the glory of God, another strand of New Testament teaching has to be taken into account, namely, that the believer is to be conformed into the image of that glory that will be revealed. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. 1 John 3, 2. Most frequently, this conformity is set forth in the terminus of likeness to Christ in the image of His glory. 
This is entertained as the glory of the children of God because in the manifestation, the glory of God will be reflected in them. And it is this reflection that will constitute their glory. The glory of God is their chief end and they long for and hasten until the day when with undimmed vision they will behold the glory of God in its fullness, exhibition, and vindication. You know what he's saying there? One day you will be vindicated. And one day you will take on the very glory of God Himself. No, you won't be God, but you will be like God. You will take on the very glory of the very essence of God. That should floor us when we think about it. That when we are living in a state of wickedness, at war with God, at that time Christ died for us. And not only that, but we stand in the present, standing in grace. And not only that, but we will take on the very glory of God. All the way from wickedness to the very glory of God. All for His glory and for His grace. And so our hope for the future lies in the fact that I will one day be like Christ. That's incredible. Well, peace with God, standing in grace, future hope. What impact should this make on our life as we think about this? Well, first of all, it will keep you from wrong feelings of guilt because you'll understand that your sin is forgiven. It will keep you from the wrong feelings of guilt because you know that your sin is Forgiven. You've been justified. And nothing will change that. Not even your sin. Believe it. Don't battle in your guilt. Let guilt do its work. Yes, guilt is to convict us of sin. As pain is to the body, guilt is to the conscience or to the soul. And that's good. That's okay. It's God-given. We need to feel guilty. But confess it. Get rid of it. Repent of it. And move on. Secondly, it will keep you from legalism. It will keep you from establishing an external code of conduct that you think you need to satisfy God. My standing with God is settled. Nothing will ever change that. I don't need to set up some ten do's and don'ts for my life. And if I attain all those things, God will think more highly of myself. Or He'll think more highly of me. Or I'll think more highly of myself. Or setting up some legalistic form of external spirituality that if I do all these things, then I'm spiritual. No, it'll keep you from legalism. I'm free in Christ to live righteously. Thirdly, it will give you a greater love for God because you understand your salvation is secured. He has done it all and out of a greater love for God you will desire to please Him by your life. You know what that means? You see, as my, life, as my love for my wife grows over the years, the more and more I desire to want to please her. The more and more I desire to want to be with her. The more and more I desire to want to Live my life with her. And yeah, it was awesome at the very beginning. But that love for her is growing more and more and more. And that's the same way it is with God. When we understand our right standing with God and what He has done with our life and what we were like before we knew Him and how the whole process of standing in grace and ultimate glorification of our life, when we begin to understand that more and more, our love for God grows greater and greater and greater. And as that love for God grows greater and greater and greater, the more and more and more I want to please Him the more and more and more I want to get away from this world and get away from this society. And the more and more I want to give my life to God in service to Him for the rest of my life. That's my motivation. A deep desire to please God out of a deep love for God, motivated by God's work of peace, standing in grace, and hope of the glory of God.
Perhaps nowhere outside of Scripture has anyone better expressed this truth than the hymn writer as he wrote, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, the creator of the world who owns it all, should die for me. Incredible, incredible truth of God's love for us. Let's pray. Father, it is good to know that your love for us is greater than our sin. Father, sometimes we are so burdened. Father, sometimes we are so guilt-ridden over our sinfulness. Well, other times we're not. Other times we don't see a great issue with sin in our life. Other times we're complacent. Other times we're comfortable. Other times we're just existing and other times we're enjoying this world too much. Father, help us to be motivated by Your love for us. Help us to be motivated by an understanding of being justified by faith. And Father, help us to understand that our motivation for the Christian life comes out of a love for You. Lord, I pray that we would be a people to please You and to live for the glory of God. And may You be exalted and may You be glorified forever and ever. Amen. Well, thanks for the opportunity. I hope that encouraged you just to think about God's love and His mercy upon our life. You can go ahead and stand, and I guess you are dismissed. Great, thanks.